Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we have spent a not inconsiderable amount of time together in the Have You Heard podcast studio. More time than I anticipated when you recruited me onto this show. And yet it seems like each couple of weeks you learn something else interesting about me that you didn't know before. It's very edifying. Well, I'm about to tell you something that I don't think you know. I actually got interested in writing about education because I had the opportunity to witness a teacher-led school transformation close up. I did not know that. I know you're literally fun. I'm, you're stunned. I'm you're stunned into, yeah, yeah, into yeah. sun. I'm gonna go make a coffee right now. So so this was in around 2010, and the school was in Lowell, Massachusetts, and there was a forward-looking superintendent at the time, and there was a school in, in an area of Lowell called the Acre, and the school was really struggling, and, and the superintendent went in, and the first thing she did was talk to the teachers and said, you know, what, what do you think the school needs? And, and the first thing that she heard from them was that they had sort of like initiative fatigue, you know, that every couple of years, somebody would come in and say, we've got a grant, we're going to do this with reading. We've got another grant. We're going to do this with math. There's a great book by a scholar named Charles Payne called So Much Reform, So Little Change. And one of the things that he talks about is reform fatigue, that teachers often reject reform on its face, not because they are opposed to change, but they are opposed to wave after wave after wave crashing on their schools with very little to show in terms of uh, follow through. I, I love that book, and I actually wrote to Dr. Payne to invite him onto the show. I haven't heard anything yet. Dr. Payne, if you're out there, there's a podcast waiting for you. You should see her eyes right now. They're, they're glistened with hope. <laughs> anyway, back to my story. Things went really well at this school. With the support of the superintendent, teachers there really took control over the turnaround. They had a lot of opportunity to work together and collaborate to figure out what they thought the kids needed. And when I would go and hang around and pester them and ask questions, what they would often say was that they felt like the leaders, both at the district level and in their school, were giving them the support they needed to take risks based on the things that they really knew as teachers about this very particular community. Um, you're reminding me of another favorite book of mine, a book called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott, which praises locally grown reform efforts that are really driven by people on the ground. Is this where I jump in and tell you that I've actually been to Dr. Scott's farm? I remember this, and I was really jealous. <laughs> now, now my eyes are glistening over with hope. Dr. Scott, if you're out there, I would really love to come to your farm as well. Okay, so there is one more part to this story. As I got more and more interested in this school, I couldn't help but notice that the people in charge of education in Massachusetts did not seem nearly as excited about it. They were more interested in top-down school improvement efforts in charter schools, um, bringing in outside management companies to run schools. So fast forward to today, and I feel kind of vindicated. The whole top-down approach to education reform seems to be running out of steam. And as we are going to hear from our guest, teacher-led bottom-up school improvement should have been the last big thing, and it may be the next big thing. It even seems like a number of leaders at 
the state level, and this is across a number of states, uh, are now increasingly themselves more open to the idea of reform driven by uh, local practitioners, reform that is homegrown from the ground up, uh, a kind of grassroots driven change that really responds to local context and that really utilizes local knowledge. I'm so excited to welcome Andrea Gabor onto the program. Andrea is the author of a brand new book called After the Education Wars, How Smart Schools Upend the Business of Reform. She's also got one of my favorite job titles of all time. She's the Michael Bloomberg Chair of Business Journalism at Baruch College in New York City. Andrea, as people might guess from that title, your specialty is actually business. How did you come to be writing about education and education reform in the first place? Well, I got interested because business got interested in education. So um, after Bloomberg became mayor, uh, a business magazine asked me to write a story about the Principal's Leadership Academy, which you may recall was this General Electric-style management institute that was literally going to try to replicate what GE did for its managers, but do this for New York City principals. And I actually got a chance to watch Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, by the way, whose nickname was Neutron Jack, uh, lecture to New York City uh, principals. And I got to thinking, you know, I wonder what lessons Neutron Jack has to you know, teach to New York City educators, and I wonder how those lessons are going to be received. Jack Welch famously argued that business leaders should just fire the bottom 10% of their workforces every year. That was his version of continuous improvement. And one of the arguments you make throughout the book is that there are actually lessons that schools can learn from business, but that education reform has focused on all of the wrong ones, including the Jack Welch-style use of fear as a motivator. So my first book was about a man called W. Edwards Deming, who was a quality guru, mostly ignored in this country um, until the 1980s when the U.S. auto industry, the electronics industry, and all sorts of other industries were flat on their backs, you know, really being hammered by foreign competition, especially from the Japanese. And these American companies started looking at what the Japanese were doing, and lo and behold, they discovered that sort of the guiding light of Japanese management was this, you know, elderly American man by the name of W. Edwards Deming. One of the key things that he argued was that if you, you know, you have to pursue continuous improvement, and the only way that you can do that is if the people who are closest to any given process Uh, In the case of factory workers, it would be, you know, the workers on the assembly line. In the case of schools, it would be teachers. Is to rely on those people to really identify what the problems are and what the, the opportunities for improvement are. But in order for those people to be able to do that, in order for the people closest to the process to be able to do that, you have to do a couple of things. You have to train them so that they know what they're looking for. That's one key piece. Um, And the other key piece he argued was that you have to drive fear out of the organization because how are you going to get people to really level with you about what the problems are um, unless they're not worried about losing their jobs or getting hammered in some other way? 
So in a sense, Deming was saying, it's not incentive stupid. It's, it's driving fear out of the organization and creating a, an environment that is collaborative and open to debate and discussion. So I, I want to pick up on a thread there, uh, and that's the importance of trust. Uh, that's the mm-hmm. phrase that often gets used in educational research and right. uh, perhaps you know, most clearly in the work of Tony Breich, uh, who has written really compellingly about the importance of organizational trust in schools. There's also fairly robust educational research on a number of the other things that you've talked about uh, from business. The importance of teacher collaboration, the importance of professional learning, the importance of professional training and professional development. It's known by educational researchers and intuited by teachers, but it has not become a kind of reason d'etre of reformers. And I'm wondering if you can speak at all to why that is, because mm. uh, certainly there are those in the business community who know that Toyota, for instance, uh, pioneered processes that devolved some decision-making authority uh, down to the actual uh, manufacturing level uh, where people on the floor were able to influence the products that they were making. Um, And again, this is mirrored in lots of educational research. Why has it not made a dent in the way that educational reform and school improvement is pursued? Well, you know, that's a really good question. Um, And you know, I think one key reason is that ed reformers, especially the business people and philanthropists behind ed reform, they really have a problem with a completely collaborative model. And so just to use, just as an example, um, I think to the extent that Jack Welch, for example, knew of W. Edwards Deming, he would have hated Deming, okay? So Welch adopts something called Six Sigma at General Electric, which is the sort of the statistical piece of what Deming was writing about um, and and practicing. Uh, But he refused to accept the idea that you need a flat and highly collaborative organizational structure. So, and and I think, and I mentioned Welch because I think in many ways he is the kind of quintessential American CEO who is comfortable with hierarchy, command and control. Um, You know, you're going to be the top, and this was a famous dictum of his, you're going to be number one or number two, or we're going to sell you off, fire you, whatever. So it was a very fear-based culture. So, you know, this brings me to this whole question of culture. So it it almost doesn't matter what the research shows. Culture is extremely powerful, as, as I'm sure you know. Andrea, I want to ask you about exactly that, the question of culture. My favorite thing about your book is that you take us deep inside some school districts where this sort of Deming-inspired culture of collaboration is a real thing. And I want to start with a place that I would guess many of our listeners have never heard of, Leander, Texas. The story you tell dates back more than three decades to when this small, mediocre school district, as you describe it, decides on its own to make Deming's management philosophy really 
the central ethos of its schools. Help us understand what that's meant. Probably the most important thing he says is that you can't do any of this quality improvement stuff, the this, this systems improvement stuff, unless you drive fear out of the workplace, right? And that's because in order to get people to collaborate, to identify problems, to identify opportunities for improvement, they have to feel both empowered to do that and they can't be fearful, right? So to get that idea across in Leander, and, and, and this is another really important thing about Leander, there are no mandates in Leander. So they were doing this quality thing for 30 years and nowhere was it ever written that you had to do it. So they tried to hire people who were sympathetic to this approach. They did tons of training at all levels, trainings for teachers, trainings for principals, etc. They had all these cultural, this whole cultural infrastructure, including, for example, Culture Day. So if you were a new, and I went to Culture Day, so if you were a new principal, I'm sorry, a new teacher, principal, custodian, if you took secretary in the district, you did a you did a week of orientation, and one to two days of that was culture day, and it was led by the superintendent and the instructional superintendent. So the two most senior people in the district spent one to two entire days with these new hires, and it was fun. You'd spend a whole day together. There would be sort of games and group activities, and all of it built around trying to get across the idea of what this philosophy is, you know, including the superintendent saying, I know we have to get test scores, and we, I know we have to do all of this, but we really want to focus on the whole child, and we want to make sure that kids, when they graduate at age 17 or 18, have the same excitement that they brought to school when they were kindergartners. One of the fascinating details that you recount from Leander is that early on, the district manages to get an exemption from the state's teacher evaluation system. As you explain, the leaders of the district had really identified that as a key source of fear among educators. And basically through this whole long period, as the pressure is ratcheting up in other Texas districts, Leander just keeps on doing its own collaborative thing. And you have a great example of how that culture gets passed along to new teachers that involves a vintage TV clip. And I'm guessing listeners of a certain generation may recognize it. Uh, Remember the I Love Lucy episode where Lucy and Ethel are in the chocolate factory and there is this nasty superintendent who's telling them, you know, if you miss a single piece of chocolate and don't wrap it, you're going to be fired. And then, the, you know, the chocolates come down the assembly line and everything is fine initially. And then suddenly the assembly line speeds up and they start, you know, shoving chocolates into their mouths, down the front of their dresses, you know, under their hats. And the lesson, as is explained, is that fear gets you no place. It, it just creates havoc and that people have to work together and be collaborative, et cetera. So eating chocolates literally becomes part of this language around quality improvement um, that suffuses the district. So it's not just one thing. It's, it's, it's really the scaffolded architecture um, around creating a culture that is collaborative, improvement-oriented, et cetera. And I know this sounds, you know, incredibly kumbaya, but I spent a lot of time there, and that's the way it was. 
And in 2015, when they were, you know, hiring a bunch of people, they literally had six times as many people applying for jobs as there were openings in Leander at a time when most districts were facing huge teacher shortages. So they really developed a reputation as a very teacher and and educator-friendly place. So to me, it's actually one of the most interesting examples. Before uh, we brought you on to the show, I had mentioned uh, the work of James C. Scott. Uh, He wrote a favorite book of mine called Seeing Like a State. And one of the things that he writes about is local knowledge that is used over time in a kind of experimental way uh, to produce rules of thumb that are responsive to a particular context. They may mm-hmm. not work everywhere, but in this setting, right. they work. And you know, one of the things that I'm hearing as I'm listening to you is the importance of embracing uncertainty, the importance of experimentation, the importance of having diverse viewpoints, that there's really no formula to any of this. And yet, at the same time, one of the things that struck me in the book was the fact that this is not a total relinquishment of control. This is not a a kind of giving up with regard to fostering school improvement because it seems like there are some similar ecological characteristics that are likely to promote practices that work. And you detail some examples from business as well as from education. And I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about those characteristics. There are a couple of key characteristics. Uh, One of them, you know, across really all of the examples that I looked at is strong leadership. You can't beat strong leadership. Um, Then, you know, having really a clear strategy for improvement. So not something wishy-washy, but actually a concrete, clear strategy. And, you know, I know you guys are from Massachusetts, and, you know, one of my favorite examples is, um, you know, Brockton High with its literacy strategy, which it pursued for, gosh, what, two decades or close to two decades, and it was really successful. They pursued it through um, everything from English to science to PE. They, it was an iterative process that was constantly improved upon through a very systematic process where you know, teams of teachers from all disciplines would get together literally every month to check in to see how's the strategy working, how are we going to improve it, et cetera. So again, very grassroots driven, but also very systematic and with a very clear strategic idea in mind. Um, consistency is very important. You know, you have to stop the revolving door. Good schools, good districts have teachers who stick around um, because they learn from each other, uh, they trust each other, they enjoy what they do. So this idea of consistency and a historic memory, memory is really important. And also we've talked about uh, cultivating a culture of trust, and uh, that's super important. So I would say that those four key characteristics really suffuse all of the examples that I've looked at. And, you know, I would also probably add that data is important. Um, so they, every example I've looked at has worked with data, has tried to use data to understand um, how things are working, 
but they understand that data isn't everything. We're talking to Andrea Gabor about her new book, After the Education Wars, How Smart Schools Upend the Business of Education Reform. Andrea, I shared a little story at the beginning of the episode about seeing for myself just the sort of collaborative school model that you've been talking about, but also realizing that it wasn't the model that policymakers in Massachusetts were interested in. And you just mentioned Brockton High. Uh, It's a key part of your book, and it's one of the most successful teacher-led school turnarounds in the country, but we almost never hear about it in Massachusetts. Now, hopefully your book is going to change things, but I'm curious about why you think that there hasn't been more interest in the sort of bottom-up teacher-led school reform that you write about. I think the lack of trust in teachers is is a huge issue. And, you know, I I like to say, and, you know, only a little bit tongue-in-cheek, that, you know, part of the reason why teachers are paid so little and have so little respect is that this is still seen as women's work. Um, and many, though, by, no, by all, all means, not all of the ed reformers, you know, are, or the, the big names in ed reform are men, but it's, I think there's a lot of mansplaining going on in education reform. And so distrust of teachers is one. And I'm firmly convinced that especially among the sort of the corporate ed reformers, they will do almost anything to destroy the union. And, you know, it's not that unions are sort of blameless in in, in this process, but that's the kind of antithesis of a collaborative approach. So if you look at where collaboration works, whether it's in Massachusetts, in ed reform, or, you know, in Detroit, when they finally started applying some of Deming's ideas and dug themselves out of a hole, you had management collaborating with unions to some degree. It wasn't always perfect, but there was collaboration. And I think that the ed reform movement is a deeply anti-union, anti-teacher movement. And I think that's part of the problem. It seems that one of the key complicating factors in education, something that makes it different and distinct from business, is its monumental scale. So we are trying to educate 50 million students, and that requires roughly 3.5 million teachers. Um, This is an enterprise far larger than any business in the United States. And it seems like one of the complicating factors here is that you really then do need to think differently. One of the lines uh, that occurs to me is uh, Linda Darling-Hammond saying, you can't fire your way to Finland. Um, You know that you actually can in particular businesses just fire people and go out and poach good talent. But that in education, uh, we need three and a half million teachers. You know, that's, that's one out of 30 eligible adults working in classrooms. Uh, right. That requires a very different kind of approach, which seems to emphasize many of the things that you're talking about. You know, trust, embracing uncertainty, uh, investing in training. Essentially, with regard to teachers, it would be, Work, working with the teachers that you've got rather than you know wishing for uh, a kind of new uh, core of teachers and trying to lure them with things like uh, salary bonuses or trying to, to scare particular teachers out of the profession with threats and punishments. Um, I'm wondering if 
you see any other issues like scale that make education just distinctly different from business? Because we've talked about some of the ways in which there are similarities. Well, you know, I think another big difference between the corporate world and the education world that we don't pay enough attention to is that most teachers that I've spoken to go into teaching because they have a social justice mission and or, and or because they're interested in some level of job security, not that, not that they have so much of that these days. But it's a very different kind of an outlook than, you know, people who go into the business world. And so that's another problem with sort of this very incentivized approach to to management, that it doesn't really resonate in the culture that the best schools cultivate, right, If you ha- if, with teachers who have sort of a social justice mission, if you will. So I think that's another really big and important difference. And the other thing I, I just wanted to mention, um, as long as we're talking about the differences between and actually, this is not a difference. This is actually a similarity. But, you know, I, I asked every single ed reformer that I spoke to and every principal and administrator I spoke to, what's the percentage of bad teachers in your school or your district? And, you know, I, I asked Paul Vallis that question. Um, I asked, you know, the progressives in New York City that question. And the highest percentage estimate I got for bad teachers was 20%. That was the highest estimate. And the rest, and, and Paul Vallis, by the way, agreed with that. He said the rest are either very good or could be very good, you know, if they were given the right training, resources, et cetera. Okay? So we have, an, we have a whole ed reform apparatus that is geared toward targeting the 20% or the 10 to 20% of teachers who may be, you know, irredeemable instead of a system that makes it possible for the remaining 80% to do their jobs well. And there's something deeply wrong with that. Most of your book is centered on case studies of places that have pursued some aspect of bottom-up school improvement. But there's one chapter that doesn't quite fit the pattern, New Orleans. You're pretty scathing in your assessment of what happened in New Orleans after Katrina. And the picture you paint is of a reform effort that is in most ways the polar opposite of the grassroots-style movements that you write about in the rest of the book. The most important thing that you need to understand in terms of the whole charter movement in New Orleans is that it really happens overnight in response to Hurricane Katrina. And you have this concerted effort by New Orleans leadership to bring in, you know, the, the sort of the top movers and shakers on charters, from outside New Orleans. So it becomes this outsider-driven effort. Um, and, and New Schools for New Orleans, um, which is create, this is the gatekeeper organization that's created in order to help funnel outside money and outside expertise into the charter um, uh, networks. Is becomes the key gatekeeper. So it's outside. It, so there's a huge bias towards outsiders, 
And, you know, if we take a step back, given the devastation in New Orleans, given the fact that most school buildings were destroyed, uh, and of course some of the destruction was was man-made because they fired all the teachers, so they had to sort of find a whole new cadre of teachers, um, one could sort of understand that they were leery about perhaps inexperienced community groups coming together trying to start charters. But this resistance toward community-led charters included those where there was a lot of educational experience. What you have in New Orleans is this distilled, stark, kind of outsider versus insider, black versus white kind of divide. Um, most of the reformers, you know, not all, but most of the reformers are white people. They come from outside of New Orleans. They run these no-excuses schools for black kids. So these you know, white outsiders are running schools that, for the most part, they would never send their own children to. That was Andrea Gabor. She's the author of a brand new book, After the Education Wars, How Smart Schools Upend the Business of Reform. It's a fantastic book full of surprises and inspiration at a time when we could certainly use some. So order it, read it, and then pass it on to a friend. They'll thank you. And Jack and I will be right back to wrap things up. So, Jack, as you know, um, recently, when it comes to the end of our episodes, I have been trying to beguile people into supporting our podcast by going to Patreon and finding us and pledging even a little bit of money. Dangling the equivalent of podcast clickbait before them. (laughs) Exactly. And one of the clickbait items is what I call Jack's reading list. People listen to these episodes and and I our you know, our our listeners are smarter than the average bear and they think I think a lot of them wonder, you know, how can I find out more about this topic? I think that this that the title for this reading list really overestimates my abilities, but I'm happy to go along with it. <laughs> well, I thought that I thought that for our secret portion of of this episode that that people can unlock if they support us, that we could dive in a little bit and talk about a book that you mentioned in our conversation with Andrea, and that's James Scott's Sing Like a State. I'm going to pay to become a Patreon member just to be able to talk about. <laughs> this. I'm very excited. So if you are interested in venturing into the weeds and learning about Sing Like a State or the Prussian Forest as it appears in Sing Like a State, all you have to do is go to patreon.com, search for Have You Heard and uh, show your love for your favorite education podcast with a small donation. That's exactly as a market-oriented neoliberal would have you do, is show your love with dollars. How else can they show their love, Jack? You can reach out to us on Twitter, at HaveYouHeardPod, or you can send us an email by emailing Jennifer. Until next time, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 